SBG podcast where we discuss the competitive side of the game. I'm Charles, and with me are Richard, Ian, and Alexander. Uh, in today's episode, we will be doing a double feature of the two Saruman profiles of the game. So both the good Saruman from the White Council and the evil Saruman from Isengard. And then in our open topic today, we'll be going over some controversial war gear of the game. A new power is rising. Its victory is at hand. Before we uh, dive into these two profiles of Saruman, which one do you guys think that we see more in the game? I think that's an interesting question. I want to say it just out of the fact that I think the profile's been around longer, the evil Saruman, also because he's a hero of legend in Isengard, and he's pretty much their cornerstone central figure. In larger Isengard lists, he becomes very much a critical option. So I think we see him a lot, especially when you get up over 600 points with Isengard. Yeah, yeah, I think um, definitely the evil Saruman. Um, I think just being able to lead warriors makes it a lot easier. With the White Council one, you tend to have to play all heroes or, you know, you have to ally him in, which usually ends up being like a non-thematic list. And, you know, not all players are like me. Yeah, I agree. We probably see evil one more, although I would say they were both quite competitive choices. So, um, you know, do see a fair bit of good, too, but evil for sure more. Richard, do you want to go through the profile for the good Saruman? Let's start there. Okay, so this is from the White Council. I guess I want to include the army bonus, so if you do play this list as a green, we're going to talk about the new Legendary Legion a little bit later, so we won't include that, but just the regular army bonus is, are you in need of assistance? A member of the White Council from this list adds plus one to the dice roll when attempting to resist magic, as long as there's another member of the White Council from this army within six inches. So essentially, if you're going to play the White Council, Saruman will have a resistant to magic most of the time. He's 170 points, wizard, infantry hero, hero of legend, move six, fight five, doesn't matter about his shooting value. Strength 4, Defense 5, 1 Attack, 3 Wounds, and Courage 7. 3 Might, 6 Will with an Asterisk, and 3 Fate. And then the Asterisk is the Staff of Power, which means he gets 1 Free Will a turn. Heroic Actions, he has Channeling and Defense. He can take a Horse for 10 points. In Special Rules, he can have a 12-inch Standfast that affects Hero Models. And also rivalry with Gandalf, where he can't participate in heroic actions called by Gandalf or accept Gandalf's aid in strength and will. Oh, and his most important special rule, of course, Lord of the Astari. He can choose to re-roll one dice when making casting or resist tests. And his magical powers are Ore of Command on a 2+, Immobilize on a 2+, and 18 inches. Terrifying Aura on a 2+, Command on a 3+, and 18 inches, and Sorcerer's Blast on a 4+, and 12 inches. So right off the bat, I think there are many reasons why um, we see him allied in. 
I think they're only historical allies with Rivendell, but White Council is a convenient ally with a lot more lists than that. So you see him in good armies to add utility with the Lord of the Astari rule. It's a great counter to uh, large heroes being able to throw immobilized in command with incredible 18-inch range and then with that reroll, right? Also, I think War of Command is really good with lists that struggle with courage. It gives them that auto-pass. Similar to why what you do with Kirdan as well. And then any caster with a horse option is obviously really good. It just adds the threat range. I see why he's taken in lists and allied in all the time. Yeah, if you think about it with the 18-inch command or immobilized, or even the Sorcerer's Blast at 12-inch, he has a horse. You know, if he's going forward 12, uh, 10 inches and then casting, or going forward 5 inches, casting, and then coming back, that's almost the same range as, uh, you know, most bows. So he actually has incredible board control. It also makes him easier than normal probably to defend, just because you can keep him probably a, a solid foot sometimes behind your own line and then move him up a few inches, move him back. If you give him that mount, then he's got the ability to escape a lot of situations where he might find himself in trouble. Yeah. And plus, with the heroic defense, like three wounds and three fate, like, he's actually quite tanky. Like, even though he's only defense five, I actually think he's a great leader. Yeah, that's a good point. I think last episode, in the open topic, when we were talking about, like, balanced lists versus, like, taking risks, I think this is a risk that some people will take to a randomized event where they would take a hero like Saruman, who's, like, super hard to kill, who's most likely out of combat most of the game. And as long as they don't hit Contest of Champions they have a really solid leader for any tournament because it's just really hard to score a wound on him. Or if it's a set scenario pack and there's no contest of champions, then you're like, man, like Saruman's going to kill it. Yeah. And uh, I guess that one thing we didn't mention is his stand fast. That is actually incredibly good too, especially if, you know, your, your goal is to keep him out of combat. So it's not only a 12 inch stand fast, but it includes heroes too. So, and with his Courage 7 and crazy amount of will store, like, it doesn't matter what Courage your other heroes are. Where are you sitting at out of 10 for good Saruman? I think he's solid, but I don't know. Like, I find it generally a little bit tough to take Wizards efficiently. Like, to me, they always seem really fun and also can be really useful. But sometimes I do struggle to get the value back. Because he is 170 points. And especially in a list where he can't take troops with him. It's just, yeah, like, we'll talk about how he does in the Legendary Legion later. But I guess from the regular list, I would probably say seven and a half. So I don't know if you guys remember, but over a year ago, back when we were uh, talking about the Gandalf the Grey episode, I think we all agreed that he's a really versatile hero where like you put him into a list and he can add all sorts of protection for your list, uh, defensive magic, uh, blinding light. I feel like Saruman is more specialized. He does have like courage buffs with the double standfast and the orf command, but there's certain things that he can't do. Like he doesn't have the blinding light, can't like restore will or protect individual models. He doesn't have what's called fortify spirit either. So he can't protect your allies from magic. So it's like he can do some stuff well. So and I know some top-level players prefer him over Gandalf, but I think just for my personal style, I probably prefer Gandalf the Grey over him just slightly. Uh, but I still say he's really good. I still 
I'd still probably give him an eight just because what he does is that he does really well. And just having that super easy to cast immobilize and, and command and having that huge threat range, I have to give him at least an eight. I thought about giving him maybe an eight and a half, but I think ultimately, as Richard mentioned, uh, not being able to lead troops, I think that brings him down to an eight. I think he's still uh, a really solid spellcaster. He's still a very useful piece to have in the army, but I agree with Richard's point that wizards are often tough to get your points back with. I find you know, he will do a lot, but whether or not he's going to be worth the 170 points when he can't lead troops is difficult. Being able to cast transfix and command on such low values is incredibly useful but i find it more useful when you are using the evil saruman which we'll talk about in a bit so i, I give him an eight he's he's solid but i don't think he's an auto take by any means okay on that note alexander do you want to go through the evil saruman profile along with the special rules and uh, we'll compare these two profiles to see where they stand so the evil Saruman profile is from the Isengard list in the Armies of the Lord of the Rings. Saruman has the wizard, Isengard, infantry, and hero keywords. He's a hero of legend, has move six, fight five, strength four, defense five, one attack, three wounds, courage seven, three might, six will, with the staff of power, three fate. His war gear is a staff of power. He only has heroic channeling, so he does not have heroic defense. You can take a Pors for 10 points. Special rules include the Palantir, in which once per game, he is able to automatically take priority prior to dice being rolled. He has Voice of Kroonir, in which his standfast is 12 inches. It includes other hero models, same as Good Saruman. And he has, again, Lord of the Astari, his magical powers include Immobilize with a range of 18 inches on a 2, Terrifying Aura on a 2, Command with a range of 18 inches on a 3, Sorcerer's Blast with a range of 12 inches on a 4, Flame Burst with a range of 6 inches on a 5. So he's, he's a bit different. He has a lot of the same similarities. So I actually have a list of the differences right now here. The good Saruman is 10 points cheaper. And he has the heroic defense, and he has the the anti synergy with Gandalf, and then the evil Saruman has the plantier, and has it's not listed as an option, but he has the option to take Rima, because you have to have Saruman to take Rima, and then he has um, additional spell flame burst, and the final difference is one one the evil Saruman can lead, the good Saruman cannot. Evil Saruman also doesn't have aura of command, so it's like kind of. You're trading in Flame Burst for, for Aura of Command. Right. But at the same time, I would like to mention that with Isengard, of course, you can, for a relatively effective cost, bring a Shaman that has Fury. So they kind of trade in and out a little bit. No, that's that's a different conversation, Alex. Shamans are, in my opinion, probably not worth it. So I personally, if I could take the Aura of Command on the Evil Saruman, I think that would be incredible. Oh, no, I, I would too. Absolutely. I'm just saying that's probably the reason he doesn't have it, is you have the access to the Shaman. If he had Aura of Command, I'd be like over the moon. It'd be, it'd be insane. I'd be so happy. Um, yeah, I mean, 
I think he doesn't have aura of command probably for maybe for like a lore reason since like he he betrayed the White Council, so maybe that's why he doesn't have it anymore. I don't know. Either way, I think when you take shamans, it's sort of like a tax. You're paying a little bit for the fury because this stat on the shaman just isn't great. So I think aura of command is a better spell than. Flame Burst, although Richard might be able to think of some uses you might have for Flame Burst, it's just most of the time I feel like you would just Sorcerer's Blast, right? In situations where you want to Flame Burst. Yeah, Flame Burst isn't bad though. Um, I have used it a couple times. I think it's usually like a late game situation where the enemy heroes have exhausted their will. So even though it's on a 5+, plus, it's it will most likely go through, and if, especially if you channel it as well. You can set them ablaze. There's a good chance you're going to get in a wound. So it's kind of a VP stealer. I know Sorcerer's Blast is one strength six. And against the hero that's D7, that might or might not go through. But if you go a channeled flame burst, then it's like a strength six, strength nine in the same turn. And then a continuous like strength five or something like that. So there's a very good chance you're going to steal a VP. Sorcerer's Blast is definitely just the easier to use spell. You know, it's got twice the range, and you can set it up in a way and use it in a way where your opponent cannot resist. Because if you just blast another model into it, so like there's more situations where you use Sorcerer's Blast. But I guess um, certain situations, I think it rewards people who know that spell well and kind of you know pull it out of their back pocket when their opponent doesn't suspect it. I'm sure there are players out there that forget that he has Flame Burst just because you don't see it cast a lot. That's one thing I like about the game, where it can like reward people for remembering niche rules and niche parts about a rule profile that people might not pay attention to all the time. So comparing these two, you know, there's uh, quite a few differences. Um, uh, we we didn't really cover this part yet, but like the automatic priority once per game is kind of nice, although it's kind of only really useful, again, like late game when your opponent's out of might, then you can kind of guarantee a, a turn of priority without calling heroic moves. But I think the big plus for the evil one is the Grima option. Grima, for listeners who aren't familiar, is a 25-point base model that allows you to deploy him with the opponent. And you just have this model that's pestering your opponent's heroes, making them spend extra might on heroic actions. And he's very hard to get rid of if you don't have magic. Um, usually you can only kill him if Grima strikes you first or if Saruman is dead. So in a lot of situations, uh, your opponent won't have any answers for Grima, and Grima kind of just leaves Hero either with one unspent might, because they can't call a heroic action with one might, or just make them think twice before countering your heroic actions. So he's a really good, really a common tactical choice, I think. Yeah, I honestly think he's one of the best pieces of war gear in the game. And I know we're not supposed to objectify people, but he's a great object. <laughs> yeah, like, I think... I think in this current like Isengard meta, Saruman is not the most popular, but it's almost always an auto-take whenever you see the Isengard Saruman being taken. You almost have to account taking Grima as well, just because he's so flexible. And if the enemy does not have offensive magic, Grima could probably instant win you in a good handful of scenarios. So how does your rating for the evil Saruman compare with uh, with the good I think I would rate him higher. Honestly, like, if we're going profile versus profile alone, the good one might be a little better just because the heroic defense, and we're talking about how Aura of Command is probably more useful than the Flame Burst. 
And I mean, the Palantir is just situational. But the evil Saruman can lead troops and also take Grima. So I think that easily, you know, is worth more than 10 points. So I think I would give an 8 out of 10. I think I agree with you, but uh, I also think building an Isengard list with Saruman isn't the easiest thing in the world either. But not because of Saruman, but because of the options in Evil. The recent uh, War in Rohan, we got some nice mid-tier Dunlin heroes to go with it, but they still kind of lack like massive heroes that a lot of armies have. Isengard still doesn't have that. Lurts is still the closest thing. So sometimes when you drop Saruman in, he takes up so many points, and I feel like at some points levels, it's not that easy to write a good list. But it's not because of him, it's just Isengard as an army, I think. But I pretty much agree with you on like the comparisons between the two profiles. I think good Saruman is slightly better, but evil Saruman is a little more flexible because of what army he's in. So I'd probably give him the same rating as uh, the good one and probably give him an 8 out of 10 as well. I'm just going to give the camera a thumbs up to say that I agree with all the points given so far. I won't even reiterate them. They're pretty much the same. Just because he can lead troops, I think for that reason alone... I have to bump him up to maybe about an eight and a half just because of what he can do in that particular list that the good Saruman can't do in other lists. But again, yeah, the the good Saruman is probably a bit better. Okay, next we'll move on to some army lists for both profiles. And since we started with a good profile first, let's go through our two um, good Saruman lists. Okay, so the first one, let's go over the new Legendary Legion briefly. I believe Alexander recently had experience playing against it, so why don't you just tell us a little bit about it. This is the new Vanquishers of the Necromancer Legion from Paul the Necromancer Supplement, and this Legion is essentially the five heroes from the White Council, and uh, they equal to exactly 800 points, and they just come with a few more special rules. There are a number of synergies that come with this Legion, and each hero contributes something to the list. For Saruman, he can attempt to cast two magical powers each turn rather than one, although they can't be the same magical power twice or the same target. And the other thing is, if when another friendly models within three of Saruman attempts to cast a magical power, they may reroll a single d6 as part of the casting attempt. Both of those parts of that rule are huge. The other thing is, just for wizards in general in this legion, they all have the same number of attacks, as their remaining wounds. So Saruman starts with three attacks, as do the other wizards. So it makes them incredibly powerful. I think this is the first time that a hero is able to cast two spells and in combat. I think you didn't uh, mention that the biggest one is casting in combat, being able to do that. I think that's what enables this list. Like, I don't think cast twice a turn would necessarily, like, make this, like, a top-tier list but now you're not able to stop them. Yeah, I guess, Alex, you can let us know what your in-person, hands-on experience with this. Let's just say that playing against this list is uh, painful. It It's like there's your, your opponent comes to the board with five models. You're like, okay, well, I, I've got 44, so, you know, can't be that bad, right? Well, you see, each of those five models is like one of the Infinity Stones, and he has all five of them. So reality can be whatever he wants it to be. You can't shut his magic casting down. That is the number one thing that I have to tell people. It sounds like you might be able to get around it, but I quite literally had the council encircled with dwarves, and I put Gimli and the King's Champion into combat. Do you think they made a strike? They did not make a single strike all game. 
essentially he can just not be struck in combat because he can just blast his own combat, right? And then they would all be knocked to the ground. Yeah, it was five Tom Bombadils. Yeah. It was crazy. It was just, it was like, I, I'm like, oh, I'm going to win this combat. I got the fight value advantage. And he's like, eh, transfix. Or, you know, the cheeky move he came up with, he was like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to transfix the king's champion, Gimli over here. He's already in combat and I'm in combat, but I'm just going to cast command purely to essentially get a second transfix. So none of my heroes did anything. And, you know, I, I kept balling nice and away from, from combat to keep him disengaged. Sorcerer's Blast. Sorcerer's Blast. Sorcerer's Blast. Galadriel can banish models that aren't spirits. And I get one die to try and resist it because they're not a spirit. She rolls a six. I don't get, I get one die. It was so sad. I, I was so hurt. This list, yeah, it, you pretty much, you you can't strike it. He has two Nature's Wrath casting models. So if I'm not transfixed, I'm on the ground. Do I sound like I had fun? No, I didn't have fun. This was probably the least fun uh, game I think I've had. Well, I, I just figured something was up, because um, given that this was a few days ago where we were supposed to do the recording for this episode and uh shortly after seeing a picture you guys posted mid-match you know you let us know that you weren't able to participate in the recording after so i, f I figured some uh some things went down it's because i it's because i couldn't stop crying uncontrollably <laughs> it is kind of brutal to like play against them with like I don't, I don't know if we had the best experience uh testing it out because we um we rolled randomly for our scenarios to pick, and we rolled Heirlooms of Ages Pass, and we both kind of looked at, it, at each other and were like, no, let's not do that. <laughs> so then we re-rolled, and we got seized the prize, and we're like, all right, let's 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 give that a try. Like, that could be interesting, because we should get to the middle at the same time, because the White Council doesn't have a march, and the dwarves do. And then it kind of just comes down to, like, a heroic move or whoever, like, rolls that four up to pick it up. I won the priority on the second turn, and they went up, and they touched the objective, and then Galadriel picked it up on the first turn. And then they just proceeded to sit there holding the objective while the dwarves surrounded them and slowly tried to charge them and failed. And then they just slowly killed dwarves. And like the dwarves would get like a reasonable number of guys in and then they'd all get knocked down by Radagast or Elrond or they'd get like a hero or two in and then the immobilizers would come out and they'd be out of will and immobilized or on their bumps. It was slow. Nothing really happened. To be fair, we also played... Seize the prize, which I think does to an extent help that legendary legion because they are able to stay as one cohesive unit. It helps them out quite a bit, as opposed to having to go off to different objectives. They didn't have to spread out to do anything. I think it does sound strong, and I know out of us, um, Alex and Ian are the ones with the experience with and against this list, this legendary legion, but. I think we have to keep in mind that it could be the particular matchup and it could be the scenario. We don't really have the sample size and also in a competitive tournament setting yet. I think in a tournament setting where this list would have to play four or five, six different games with yeah, it's not varying objectives, it's, it's not unbeatable, no. But I, I think also, like I said, being able to have that army, any scenario where that army can clump together all five models within a few inches of each other, and cast all their spells in a bubble, it becomes incredibly difficult to play against. 
But in a scenario like maybe domination or capture and control where you've got to get out to different objectives and you don't have a nature's wrath within two inches of every model in, in your army, then you start opening up gaps to be able to do something. I do feel like it is particularly strong and I definitely get like the the sentiments that are being said online where people are saying it's just a negative play experience like when you play smog because like Alexander was doing nothing like the whole game like he, he wasn't I think he won one fight and then failed the wound and that that was it like his heroes couldn't really do anything all his guys could do was die pretty slowly as for them being like overpowered and stuff I I, I don't know I think the experience might be a lot better and a lot more interesting if they got rid of that rule so like if they changed saruman's uh special rule that he gives where everybody within three inches get to re-roll their spells because that just makes like your spells so good and so so reliable like you don't even have to think about it you know like all four of them and maybe elrond are going to get a spell off that turn if they're close together it is like oppressive like he had no counterplay and then the other thing is is i um channeling terrifying aura i did that on all the wizards first turn and it's like it's so hard for them to charge in and stuff as for the sarumban specific rule where he gets to cast two spells a turn in the legion that's his like big big buff for himself that's kind of awesome it's really good on him um even though you don't have a lot of will you have one free per turn and then six in your store you can still reliably get two spells off a turn because he always has that reroll. We'll see. I would like to try and see how it plays in an objective-based one, like Breakthrough or Domination first before giving another final rating, because this one was ended up more just being like a straight-up fight, and then we could go. But from what I see, it is still really powerful, and I think in the hands of the right player, it could easily win, you know, five out of six or six out of six games in like a big tournament. Yeah, so basically, we know it's really strong in certain scenarios. So I kind of just seeing also discussions online about how this Legion can be game breaking. And um, I think a lot of it is like theory crafting. And with all hero armies, I feel like it, you know, even with all these rerolls, it still takes a certain amount of luck, luck as in like who you're facing as well. I think you can also make mistakes that are less forgiving because you have so few models. Your every move and your every decision is more significant, has a bigger impact on how you're going to do. So I don't necessarily think this is a like a, an overpowered army. Um, it, it has po podium potential, I think. But I'm hesitant to give it a Hero of Legend because we already see the weaknesses on paper, as strong as it is. So I'm probably like a, like a Hero of Valor, despite how strong it is in a scenario like Sea Surprise. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I think we can look back on this episode in in a few months' time as well. But my prediction is pretty similar. Is I think people are overreacting a little bit, and I don't think that this will like dominate the top tables at tournaments or like win multiple tournaments. Because you know the biggest thing with this is that it's just the strongest death ball. But in tournament play, you can't always rely on tabling or like quartering or killing most of your opponents every single game because one of the biggest limiting factors is time. And I feel like it would actually be incredibly hard to win all your games because once a good player figures out their army is not going to, you know, outfight you because you can just heal up. So unless they have something that can like 
instant kill heroes like siege weapons or something, watcher in the water or something like that, where might be a good way to counter this list a little bit. But if they don't, they can just play the keep away kind of game. And good luck, even with your sorcerer's blast and vanishes, good luck killing like 30, 40 models in a one hour, 45, two hour time frame. Your opponent can just sit on an objective. Imagine like Goblin Town, like the goblins are going to be running away from you. So you either split up or you have to chase the goblins and you have to kill like 60 of them to break them. Like that is not happening in three hours. So I, I, I agree. I think uh, Hero Valor for me. I, I Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with that. The, the other big thing is they might actually do decent in those objective-based ones, but they'll need time. Like they can't really split up. Maybe you can make two groups of two, but then... It's not playing to their strengths, right? Their plan in that scenario would be go to one objective, clear it, go to another objective, clear it, go to another one, clear it. And that's going to take a lot of time when you're capped at six inches of moving per turn. Yeah, time time is definitely a factor. Uh, Richard brought it up earlier where, like, you, if you don't have time to get those objectives, they can't win those games. Also, just in the counterplay to this uh, thing, I would say definitely just leave your leader, like, 18 inches away from this and just let your leader sit there and deny the opponent VPs who have whoever has the white council because they can put out a crazy amount of damage really quickly the galadriel banishment is nice and i think it's it's well balanced because the opponent does get a die roll but if she's throwing two dice with a re-roll she's always going to be getting like the five or six and that makes it really hard to resist and she also has the dragon ball z hit at the end right um Oh, yeah, the drag. Oh, yeah. So we were looking at the profile, right? And it doesn't actually say Galadriel is unarmed in her profile, in her war gear. It says she has this and this, and it doesn't say she's unarmed. And then one of the special rules that goes away when she does the super hit is the one that says she never counts as unarmed. But she never counts as unarmed anyway, because she's not doesn't have the words written in that she is unarmed. Unless that's in an FAQ. Wait, or is it... If you don't have a weapon, you're automatically unarmed. I'm pretty sure in the game it says it has to say you are unarmed to be unarmed. Yeah, because the necromancer doesn't have a weapon, but he's not unarmed. Yeah, so there's like, (laughs) you lose her free point of will per turn, and then you lose, I think, the blinding light. But she still has the fight six, three attacks, and at strength four, no minus one. Because she still always just has her hands she can slap people with. So... Even though her quote-unquote war aspect thing is gone, it's not gone. She can still slap just as effectively. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll give it a Hero of Valor, too. I think all the points are really valid. I think it's going to be really interesting to see just how the list does across multiple tournaments when different scenarios are in play and you have to figure out how to play that list across an entire map as opposed to within a bubble. Yeah, I mean, of course, like, if you get matched up in a, you know, contest of champions or, like, Lords of Battle against this list, then, um, you know, you can you can cry a bit inside. That's okay. You can keep most of your models on the tray so, so you can move to the next table for the next round, because that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, aside from this um, Superman Thanos uh, Saruman that you can play in this Legion... There's another way, and Richard brought a list today where it's the Sarm and the White Good model allied into a list. Okay, so it's an 800-point list. I have Sarm and the White with Horse in the first warband, and in the second warband, I have my leader 
Denethor leading two guards of the Fountain Court with shield, six warriors of Minas Tirith with shield, two with shield and spear, one knight of Minas Tirith with shield, and three rangers of Gondor with spear. And then in the third warband, I have her in the tall on horse, leading seven warriors of Minas Tirith with shield, three with shield and spear, one with shield, spear, banner, one knight of Minas Tirith with shield, and two rangers with spears. And in my second last warband, I have Madril leading four warriors of Minas Tirith with shield, two with spear and shield, a one knight of Minas Tirith with shield, and two rangers with spears. So very similar looking warbands. And then in my last warband, I have a battle cry trebuchet to a total of 44 models. And I think there's some uh, synergies in this list. Saruman is not my leader, which arguably can be a little bit of a weakness. But Denethor here is not so bad because I do have Hurin, who is able to mitigate losing BPs with Denethor. And I also have Saruman's Aura of Command, which allows Denethor to not go crazy as much. This list is a bit more of a castle kind of uh, strategy. And I'm using Saruman's magic to pair up with the trebuchet, some siege weapons. And yeah, I, I generally don't like siege weapons, but I think this actually goes quite well because I'm pairing it up with magic like Sorcerer's Blast and also lots of shooting, which generally people would try to like put in the ways and like, you know, block their important stuff. But I also have a trebuchet, which is a AOE area effect damage. So it's kind of like a pick your poison. If you spread out your guys too much, then, you know, my shooting will kind of be able to pick targets. And then, you know, I'm hoping to do some damage at range. And then once you come in, I don't have the strongest heroes, but I feel like I would have enough numbers after whittling the opponents down to overwhelm them once in combat. So what you're saying is your game plan is give your opponent a choice, a thousand arrows or big, big rock. Yes. <laughs> that's that's the game plan. And I've got to say, when you mentioned that, the first thing I could think of was your opponent trying to spread out to uh, mitigate the effect of the trebuchet and then Saruman blasting their leader out of range of their scatter targets and then being directly hit with the trebuchet. And then that player picking up each one of his models and snapping them in half because that sounds awful. And you should never do that to somebody that is so mean. It's excellent. No, but I, I quite like the list. I think it's got a lot of versatility there. Obviously, with the Warriors with Shield and Shield and Spear, you get the high defense. You've got a solid number of bows. You know, Rangers of Gondor are no slouches. I don't mind Saruman not being the leader and Denethor having to be the leader, because I think we've seen this in a lot of lists. Denethor is an effective leader, especially when you kind of insulate him and you have her in on the list. It makes it very difficult to score those uh, leader victory points. So I quite like this list, actually. I think it's it's quite promising. I think it's a really strong valor. I think there's quite a few synergies that you mentioned that uh, that might be hard to spot. You know, the one Alex mentioned about the blast with the trebuchet. 
And then also um, the Saruman and giving Denethor the auto pass. I, I actually didn't see that the first time I read this list. Because um, normally I see Lady of Light allied in with Minas Tirith and, and as like the most common caster. So this is pretty interesting. So just a couple things. In, they're not necessarily critiques, but it's just like I wonder if they would be better. So you mentioned that you wanted to go for like a castle strategy in some games. I wonder if it would be a good choice to go like max bows on this one, you know, maybe take out like a couple cav and put in like Rangers or Citadel guard just so you can maximize that advantage. I understand you don't have blinding light, so you might not be able to win every shoe war. So maybe you don't want to do that. And then the other thing was, I think we all agree that Madril is pretty good, but I want to say that I might prefer Eurolas over him. Eurolas is 10 points more and you get the fight five and then the defense six. Although I do see the the Maelstrom modifier really good on Madril, I'm just not 100% sure if I would prefer that over what Eurolas brings. It's a really close one, I think, between the two. Uh, yeah, I really like Eurolas. I probably prefer Eurolas as well. He has the heroic defense. But I think the reason why I chose Madril for this one is because I have a trebuchet. And I think that is very dangerous in Maelstrom situations. And if I somehow roll badly with my other warbands, I want at least one guaranteed warband to be beside my trebuchet so it's not an auto kill. And because it is more of a shooty list, he does give the accuracy, which might come in handy in fringe situations. Uh, I agree, though. I probably should have gone the Ian route and maxed out my bows. Surprise! I agree. I think, yeah. Max Bows would have been good in this list, but also I think Madrill is the right call because you have like three things that can get kind of isolated in Maelstrom scenarios, right? You have Saruman, who you don't really want to be spending Might on, but he's a single drop, so if you roll badly, you're going to have to spend his Might. Denethor, who has no Might, and then the Trebuchet was also in the same kind of situation where you don't really want it to be like isolated by itself, so you want Warbands to come in next to those things. And having the Madrill plus one, minus one makes it like really easy to put things together in those scenarios. Yeah, my argument for Eurolast is just that, you know, with Hurin being like the, your only combat hero in the list, you're, you're putting a lot of weight on his shoulders. And with Eurolast in the list, the heroic defense and also the defend the White City rule, you can kind of throw him at a big hero. And so you won't rely that much on Hurin. But again, it really depends on your enemy's list and also the scenario. So you you won't really need your last combat ability every game. It's just something nice to have, I guess. But yeah, I, yeah. I, I think this is a... I think it's between a Valor and a Legend because I, I, I'm i a fan of Siege Engines. I think they provide nice utility. And then I like Sarm and what he brings to this list. So I'll go a Legend on this one. I'm tempted to say Valor because I wish it had more like hitting power in combat. But I like the variety of utility, so I think just barely uh, give it a, a legend. I think I'm, like, just the other way. I'm out of Valor. But I feel like if I saw it played well on the tabletop, I could easily jump it up. I'm just looking at it right now. That's kind of where I'm at, is a Valor again. Okay, uh, let's move on to some lists for the evil Saruman. Alexander, do you want to go with yours first? I think it's a 800-point pure Isengard list. Yeah, so I, I put together what I believe to be just kind of the benchmark bread-and-butter Isengard list at 800 points. I haven't played this list in a long time. Man, am I nostalgic looking at this thing? It's uh, Saruman on horse, four Urukai warriors with shield, three with pike, 
one with shield and banner, two ward riders with shield, Ugluck, four Urukai warriors with shield, four with pike, two ward riders with shield, Vrashku, 12 Urukai warriors with crossbow, an Urukai shaman with armor, three Urukai warriors with shield, and three with pike. Uh, the overall idea of this army is Urukai, lots of Urukai. Obviously, I have the one strike in there. I've got a solid amount of shooting there with the 12 crossbows and Vrashku with his expert shot special rule. I do stick the shaman in there with the armor because against anything that is terror causing or when this army does finally have to take courage tests for breaking. I know obviously we talked earlier about how good Saruman's bubble is, but in terms of against terror the shaman is a nice little addition to have in there around the center of your army just because they are base courage three they are pretty weak in that aspect aside from that you know a lot of strength four i've got a little bit of mobility with the word riders even though it doesn't really fit the synergy of the army because as we've talked about multiple times they don't get the isengard keyword but I do feel they're necessary for running out and grabbing objectives or just kind of poking around flanks, you know, making your opponent think twice about when he's going to come around uh, the corner of your shield wall somewhere. And then just Ugluck over Lurts purely for surplus value that you get from the extra 25 points there. Still has three might points, still has a strike. Have to be slightly more careful with him because he's defense five instead of defense six. But if you can keep him insulated until he gets into combat, he can do okay against troops. Yeah, that's 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 about it. So the first thing I want to say when I see this list is it brings me back to 2010 and 2012 because this looks like a classic Isengard list and with the hero choices, the shaman was good back then, so you would take the shaman, and Ugluck and Brasku were better than Lurts, so you see them over Lurts. I think this would have been something that I would take to a tournament. I don't think these would be the heroes I would choose now. The Shaman, I think, is the least common between like the Orc and the Goblin and the Urukai because Isengard has ways around that. I feel like you would get similar results if you just threw in a few Berserkers or if you took some of the awesome Dunlin heroes that Alexander, I remember you saying that you really loved and wanted to use. If you had a few of them in there, then you could take a couple Huskirls, which they have bodyguards. So they're actually the Huskirls bodyguard. They can actually bodyguard Saruman. Read it the other day. It's any hero in the army list. But you still probably want the Dunlending heroes to get the conditional fight for. So I think the choices here, um, they all make sense, as you described. But I don't think it's optimized. Like Ugluck's headtaker is a little bit redundant with Saruman's double standfast. So... Yeah, I would definitely try to have like Gorolf in there, maybe Frida instead of the Shaman and Ugluck. But, you know, there's nothing in here that I see is like really wrong with it. I just think that there's just choices in here that I would definitely change for a more optimized list. I'd probably give this like a Hero of Fortitude. Are you calling my list old-fashioned? Because, fair. I, I could <laughs> probably update that with the Hero choices. I look at it and I, I look at kind of building like an, an all Urukai list, which maybe I've got to rethink uh, with the additions of what's happened with Dunland in the last year. But yeah, yeah, I mean, that's something I've got to look into and maybe get my hands on a little bit of. 
good points, Charles. Um, just to add on with the courage things, you can also include um, the Oathmaker. You can bring uh, Fearless Wildmen of Dunlin as well. So that's another option for Fearless, which, yeah, I think makes the Shaman not the best choice for especially 55 points. And I think something we mentioned earlier is, you know, one of the best pieces of war gear in the game, Grima Wormtongue. You know, and I think especially if you're going to take Saruman in a pure Isengard list, I think because it's such a straightforward list, I think Grima adds a different level of uh, gameplay and shenanigans to help you win certain scenarios. So I think that's really important. And I guess just the uh, warband allocations, like you can argue putting all the crossbows in Rasku's warband, you might use heroic accuracy once in a while, but I think especially because the way crossbows are, you can't move and shoot. I would prefer them to be in different locations so you can kind of get a wide arc and different angles to shoot at because otherwise I feel like the enemy army with certain maneuvering and heroic marching can move in a certain way where they can kind of avoid the bulk of your shooting formation. I think this list is definitely playable. I think it's a good budget list. All the units here are fairly accessible either from like Games Workshop or like you can get them pretty cheaply in the secondhand market. So I think yeah, it's it's a good like easy beginner list where it's pretty straightforward to play, but it's definitely not the most competitive. I would say Fortitude as well. I don't really have much to add to what the two of them said. It is kind of just like your classic Isengard one where you're just you're leaning into the like the strength for being on like all of your troops, right? And you're just relying on that and the numbers to be able to carry you through. Yeah, I personally if I'm looking at an Isengard list that has Saruman in it, like, yeah, the Grima pick is great, but also I I think I mentioned this before, I love the idea of having Thryden in there on the horse, ready to just, as soon as Saruman can command an enemy hero out of their line, he just runs in there and bonks him on the head and, like, insta-kills him. I love the idea of that combo. So I think you probably could, like, optimize it further, but, yeah, I, it's... Boy, that sure is Isengard, and I will give it a fortitude. <laughs> oh yeah okay. and and speaking of dunlin like crebane too right if you add a crebane or two here that's a different ball game yeah crebane might be more points efficient than war griders in most situations i think but i don't think war griders are necessarily bad it's just yeah crebane are, are just too amazing not to include the second list for evil sarman is one that i wrote up and it is uh isengard easterlings and cond alliance so first warband, we have Saruman on horse. He's the leader. And in his warband are Grima on horse, two Crabane, one Berserker, eight Orc Warriors with shield, six Orc Warriors with spear. Second warband, we have Kamul on Felbeast with nine Easterlings with shield, five Black Dragon with pike and shield, one Easterling with shield, pike, and banner. And the third warband is a Kondish King and Chariot. So that's 800 points, 36 models, seven might. Um, the idea behind this list is I've seen a few times online where people have taken the good Saruman with an Iron Hills chariot, and what they do is they charge a chariot in, and then they blast the chariot so everyone gets knocked over. And because of how the chariot works, the chariot doesn't get knocked over. So it actually adds uh, like a layer of protection, and it makes it really risky for an opponent to charge the chariot. And the same idea here applies to the Condish King and chariot, and also, correct me if I'm wrong, but also the Fell Beast. If you blast the Felbeast, I don't think that the Felbeast would get knocked over. So in the same way, 
the strategy is using those two as my main offensive damage dealers and using Sarman's uh, Sorcerer's Blast to kind of neutralize models that charge them. Both of them also have heroic strikes, so they're also like hero killers as well. It's a little bit low on might, but I do have Grima to kind of counteract that by forcing my opponent to spend more might on their side as well. The reason why I went with the Easterling Kamul Warband rather than the Mordor Kamul is I wanted to have some fight for support. I know in Mordor you can get Black Numenorians, which are very, very good warriors. I wanted just to have a few supporting fight for that I can have in the back. Uh, that might be a debatable kind of option, but maybe it's because we've been seeing some new Easterling models on the online and I've just wanted to write an Easterling list. But it's like a solid defense six block uh, to kind of offset the Isengard warband that might be a little bit softer. So yeah, that, that's the idea of the list. The idea is to use those two hard hitters and then rely on Grima. Those are probably my three main threats. I thought that that chariot interaction only worked on the Iron Hills one because the Iron Hills one has a rule in its profile saying it can never get knocked over. Okay, I just read it. So the Condis chariot has uh, the chariot and magic rule. So it says, finally, magical powers such as Sorcerer's Blast, Nature's Wrath, and Call Winds will not move the chariot or knock it prone, although they will still inflict any damage as detailed in the magical powers description. Okay, thank you. So that being said, I didn't even think that was a synergy that you had in this list, and you do. The one that I was thinking of is, is kind of what I just mentioned with Thryden, where you just you compel out an enemy hero, and then you hit him with a chariot, get some free hits on there, or you hit him with Kamul, because he can boost his fight value and stuff, and he can strike on the Fell Beast and get a lot of damage in there. Yeah. Um, that's what I saw immediately when I, when I looked at the list. I do like it. I do like the cheekiness of that. Uh, what else do you guys have? Any other thoughts, guys? Yeah, I like the Fell Beast in this one. Um, just having three flyers and you have double casters and you have a chariot so you just have a lot of different mechanics that interact with each other and you know some that we don't even notice right now but once you start playing i think you'll notice and you know catch the opponents off guard i guess my only thing is i personally would like prefer mordor over the easterling contingent i I see where you're coming from and the benefits there, but you could either go Kamul or, you know, why not even the Witch King? Because you can still take Saruman as your leader and you can get an extra might in there. And Witch King is arguably just as good at fighting while being a better caster. Or you can go with Shadow Lord. So I just feel like it's a bit more flexible and I personally just would still prefer the Black Numenorians, even though it wouldn't be fight for support. But yeah, overall, I do like it, and I do like the trickiness of this list, and I think it would be extremely fun to play. This is a list that I could see myself playing, so I think I would give it a Valor. Yeah, I just really like all of the different aspects of this list. It's tough to plan against just because, it, you know, it's not a big movement list, but it's not all magic, though it is a lot of magic, and it's not... Well, actually, it is relatively high model count. So, yeah, Valor. I don't mind the uh, the Easterling pick, honestly. I I think it, it's kind of equal what you want. Like, if you want the D6 in the front or you want it as your, like, second line, like, you could take it either way. Other than that, like, you have, just, have so much going on here in the list. The only thing that makes me a little nervous is the model count, considering it's, like, half orcs. And they're just, they're just like defense four, defense five orcs. And then you do have the Easterlings in there. But again, like most of them are just fight three, right? 
Yeah, so that kind of makes me a little nervous, but other than that, it's really solid, and I can definitely see it doing really well. I think I'm at a Valor. I think I'm at a Valor. But it can definitely, like, it can definitely take down a lot of other lists. Just, like, dismantle them. Okay, those were our lists for the two Saruman profiles. Let's move on to the open topic of the day. Today's open topic, we will be talking about controversial work here. So uh, I don't necessarily think that we're covering like the worst work here in the game, but just more that are kind of debatable whether they're useful and maybe kind of give our experience on, you know, our opinion on whether we can make them competitive somehow. Yeah, so we're not necessarily going to go like talk about the Windlands again that <laughs> we did a few episodes ago you know, stuff like that. But we're going to go into some that we've either, like, seen used or we see potential in. Well, is the Windlands even controversial? Or is it just universally accepted as being bad? I think it's universally accepted as not good. So I wouldn't put it on this list. I don't think it's controversial. The other one that's really bad is the Black Numenorian two-handed weapon on the Marshal. It's like, you have to pay five points and then you remove the shield as well. That Like, no, I'm not going to include those ones in this list. These ones have some potential for discussion. So we'll just kind of go through them one by one here and kind of give our opinions on them. So the first one I have here, I think it gets talked about quite a bit, and there is some debate around it, and that is Elven Cloaks. So Elven Cloaks was changed at the beginning of this edition to only being an effect if you're obscured by terrain rather than models. And so a lot of models have them kind of incorporated into the profile where they have the stock and scene rule, which is basically what it's now called stock and scene. But Elven Cloaks provide that, so I'm just going by the, the old name, I guess. But there are some profiles in the game, like Fellowship models or um, certain Elven heroes have the option to take them five points. Although for Legolas in Thranduil's Halls, it's ten points for some reason, but most heroes it's five points. So what are you guys' thoughts on, like, the viability of this? Because it seems really terrain-dependent. Like, when would you take them in a list, uh, let's say, in, like, a tournament list? If the model is your leader and they're on foot, I don't think it's a bad investment. I'm I'm just going to open with that. Otherwise, it's probably mostly better if it just comes on the model. Like, you know, Thranduil, he just has it, and you're like, awesome, I just have it on the cloak. That's great. But, like, I don't know if I would add it to him. Yeah, I think it says a lot when, in this edition anyway, most, pretty much all the troops that come with Elven Cloak are deemed as overcosted. So, for example, the Mirkwood Rangers. And, I mean, I think that it doesn't do as much anymore. And I think it really does depend on your local meta. Like, if you know your local scene always uses a lot of terrain and it's, like, really heavily wooded, then that's something that you might consider. Or I guess like maybe if you're taking like, you know, Strider, you know, among the army of the dead, and he's obviously going to be the clear target. And also he's kind of, you know, your win condition a lot of the times. You might want to protect him a little bit more because you know that everyone's going to be focusing their shooting on him. So maybe that would be a good pick. Yeah, it's definitely situational and... Which is why, like, you don't see 
really see Morgul stalkers. You don't really see uh, the basic wood elf without the armor. But I do agree that you probably would get it for like a hero that's low defense because it is only five points, right? So like maybe it'll help you in one or two of your games of that tournament. It definitely is like a low impact and will depend game to game. So at least it's only five points. Yeah, I I think it, it's nice if you're going to have like a shooting hero who you know most of your games, you can comfortably leave them out of combat and just shoot. You'll be fine. So if you have Legolas on foot, the cloak isn't a bad investment for five points. Uh, if you're allying in Haldir on, and he can only be on foot and you're going to make him your leader, give him a cloak. Sit him in a forest shooting two shots a turn at stuff that comes near. Perfect. That's fine. Except for a Mirkwood Legolas. That's basically never worth it. Oh, yeah, in that case, you pretty much always just throw them on the horse, though, so... It wouldn't work on the horse. Okay, the next one is a controversial one, at least locally, and that is Orcrist. So I know, Ian, Richard, you guys have something to say about it. Personally, I put it on Thorin, but never on Legolas. What about you guys? I mean, I, I think it's... Yeah, it's never on Legolas. I think it's arguably on Thorin, but even then, I don't know if that's... Because you're essentially paying for, I don't know, I, I I think I've spoke of this before. I just don't really like the conditional like rules like hatred for blah, 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 you know, or bane for whatever. Because you have to, the times where you don't match up against that specific list, then it, it just doesn't do anything. So you're essentially paying 10 points for the hand and a half elven made weapon. Conditional terror too. Yeah, that's what I mean, is like you get conditional special rules when you come up against the right army. So I would say for Urkurs, though, like if you're at a good versus evil tournament, then okay. Maybe it's even worth it on Legolas because very likely that, you know, you're going to be facing orcs, goblins, or Urkai. I think on Thorin, it's probably like that's the case where you would almost always take it, or at least I think I would, because of just the, the extra protection it gets him. Right, like he's a hero in that list that people are gonna want to put their heroes into to try and stop. So having the Elven Blade advantage in that is really handy. The other thing is, is he has the free heroic combats. So even though you get limited terror from it, limited terror is better than no terror if you're gonna be heroic combating through lines and potentially getting surrounded a lot more often than than other heroes, right? Also, I have seen some people use it to give him the plus one to wound to crack like high defense things. I'm not a huge fan of that, but it's definitely a use. But I would argue just that the Elven Blade is, is a bigger thing for him. So you brought up the hero combat thing. Does that mean that you would only get it on the Champion of Erebor version of Thorin? I think it's a more important pick on that version of him. And that's the one you're going to see out at events a lot more often than the, the Thorin's Company version. I don't know about the Thorns Company version. You know, if you're playing Thorns Company, you just, you know, you're you're doing your thing. I don't think it matters if you're gonna. <laughs> it's not gonna make a huge difference if you pick that piece of war gear or not, unless you you know you're coming up against the uh, the Goblin King. As for the sword on Legolas, it used to be a much more important pick because he didn't have an Elven blade. He had two daggers. Now he has Elven made daggers, so he already gets that bonus when he's fighting. So, yeah, having the sword on him, it's not as good as it used to be. I still like to take it because, you know, if I'm putting him on the horse, uh, that's how I usually like to run him in my Mirkwood. And then, you know, it's the same kind of thing. It could, could give him a little bit more hitting power if he wants to go two-handed. It could give him a bit more protection with the terror. It just makes it a little bit more viable, but it's not like a 100% thing. It's like if you have the extra points to make it work. 
Okay, next one is going to be another name sword, and that's Anduril on Strider. It used to be 75 points, which is a definite no, but now it's down to 40, and we're talking about the Ranger, the, the Strider profile. Obviously, the Eldestar comes with Anduril, so what do you guys think about paying 40 points to wound everything on a 4+. I mean, again, it's not just the four plus, right? It's also a two-handed or a hand and a half elven made. So if you two-hand that, you can actually go wound everything on a three plus. This one, I think it really depends on the list. I think if you're taking him in a list that lacks hitting power, then I think that you, you should take Endural because that is kind of, that can act as a win condition if you have a lot of strength three warriors in your list. But, you know, if you're trying to bulk out your numbers and you have fight for strength four troops, then maybe just choose to go with more warriors instead. I think if you're counting, like, how many times you're going to spend on wound modifiers and kind of seeing the four plus or three plus to wound that way, you can get your points back because that's what, like, eight modifiers, if you count each might as, like, five points. But I find that over the course of the tournaments, there are games where your hero, your beat sticks, only fight for three or four turns. If it's like a scenario where you're crossing the map, or a scenario where you come on later, or you start off far away from combat, for some reason you don't have very many hero combats. In that case, I see it very hard to get your points back. The other thing is like your army composition. If Strider's role is to call free marches or call free heroic moves, He's not going to have very many hero combats, so I don't know if it's worth the 40. I think it's nice in like the legions he's in where he gets it for free. And it's nice on LSR, obviously, but I don't know about paying 40 for it. Yeah. Yeah, if it was like 25, yeah, 30 for sure, I think. Yeah. I, I think it kind of depends, like like you're talking about, Charles, like the, the role he's going to have. And it kind of depends if he's mounted or not. Like if he's mounted, then you're definitely trying to make run him as a huge beast to hero. And in that case, wounding stuff on a four up, you know, that's nice. That's really good. You probably wanted to do that. If you're just running him around on foot trying to call like marches or like, you know, just being a might battery and, you know, going into two troops a turn and, and just trying to kill two troops a turn. If he wants extra damage that way, he can call heroic strength for free while he's on foot and he can get a bit of extra damage, like damage up with that way. So it kind of depends. But the other thing for me is if you're going to put Aragorn on a horse and give him Andrew why don't you just go for LSR and get like a six inch banner for, I don't know. Well, they have, they have different like, alliance options. I get, I guess so. I see what you mean. I think it only really matters if you're facing a lot of defense seven and up because like below that is just kind of like getting a Lance almost or like a Burly because it's usually a plus one would have a similar wound value. So I think you only see like the huge difference when it's against like other monsters or like dwarves or something. Yeah. Charles, did you just say that Andril is a 40-point lance? Because that's what I got out of it, and it, it really just made me decide that Andril is rarely worth it. It's a it's an elven-made lance, Alec. Oh, better. Okay, never mind. <laughs> Back on board with Andril now. Okay, there's another weapon on a specific hero, and I'm just going to make this a two-in-one. So it's Azog, and it's the two that we sometimes see. So the Flail and the Signal Tower... Now, I know a lot of people like the flail, but I've also heard that it's a little bit of an overkill because what it does is uh, it gives you um, a D3 wounds on each of your two wound rolls and it brings his fight value down to six. And then the second one is a signal tower. So these two options on him. What are your guys' thoughts? Go listen to an unexpected podcast for signal tower thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> they love it over there. I've seen yeah, it do really well. Like, uh, like at high yeah. points, I've seen the signal tower do really well with, like, if you spam out berserkers and they all get the free march and they all get the banner reroll. It's pretty terrifying. And That's I think a very it's scary list. Yeah, and I think it's actually an advantage that there's no real model for the signal tower. So, you know, there's some sneaky ways you could build that tower. Let's just say that. <laughs> very questionable ways. Use it as terrain. Place it down on the board. <laughs> and that sees the that, prize. Oh, there's this massive tower in the way now. Good luck getting to it. <laughs> it might even beat the White Council, Legendary Legion. <laughs> Makes them walk around like a massive hill. <laughs> but as for the flail, I don't know what you guys' thoughts are, but I think that with the strength five and the three plus to wound heroes, I actually think that he's fine without it. You're already putting so many points in a model. I honestly haven't played him with the flail in a long time, so I can't really say if I'm sure on this, but I think he's already pretty strong without it. Like, strong enough that he can kill who he's supposed to kill. I think both this and Andrel, for me, fall under a similar category of you're taking a hero that is very capable of doing a lot of offensive damage just with their base profile. You give them a 40-point piece of war gear, and they might do a little bit more, but really they're they're going to probably still end up along their general baseline of where you would expect them to perform. So you've given him this massive flail for, I can't even remember how many points. 20. 20 points? Yeah, it's a 20-point big rock on a chain. If he gets into combat and he gets the charge off on the White Warg, he's going to get at least two troops. And it reminds me of a conversation I was having with Ian only a few days ago about relatively big-ish hero in another list, uh, you know, just saying, depending on the way you build the list, that hero does not need to go out and have a spectacular game, getting rid of four troops a turn, you know, even if it just munches one or two a turn sometimes it's going to end up amassing quite a big difference over the course of the game. I don't think you need those pieces of war gear for that. Yeah, I think the argument is that it's mostly for killing troops, right? Because against heroes, you already wound on the 3+, and most of the time versus heroes, you want to keep your fight 7. And against troops, the thing is, you're strength 5, and most troops have only one wound, so you don't really need a D3 wound. So... Essentially, you're paying 20 points to activate your Burly on a two-handed weapon. So I guess, like, it might make sense if, like, Azog is your whole army and you're, like, trying to rely on him to do everything. But I guess from a points efficiency point of view, to me, 20 points for, like, a Burly is probably not worth it. So... I used to think that it wasn't, like, worth it and you'd never take it until I heard, like, the argument that Richard just mentioned where it, it makes it a lot more useful for him to kill troops with. And in that sense, I think I agree because he's very, very expensive. And if he's only wounding defense six troops on fives, and there are a lot of defense six troops in the game, it's going to be harder for him to get value out of that, especially, like, with heroic combats and stuff. It's still a dice game. Wounding on fives, I think we've all done it before. You know, you roll eight dice and you do one wound on fives and you go, ah, now do I have to spend another one of might to get the turtle combat to go off or do I just give it up? And then, like, is it worth it at that point? The plus one wound just makes it so much more reliable. So it, it's kind of, it is a big investment, but 
I feel like if you can shell out the points for it, you're always going to be happy that you have the option. But that's just theory. <laughs> so. But Ian, I would argue that if you're trying to make your points back with Azog killing warrior models, you're probably not going about it the right way. Because I'm not sure if you'll have enough combats to do that. Because I see Azog more as a hero assassin. And I think that's where you win games is when you take out, you know, the big enemy heroes. Well, I suppose my counter to that would be it's much easier to throw a combat into enemy heroes when you have plus one to wound to kill the troops in front of you. Not the best argument, but that, it does make it much fair. more reliable. And then I'm not sure, like, if he if he uses the flail to help kill some troops and then he jumps into an enemy hero, can he revert back to his other weapon and then go back to fight seven? It depends if the wording is if he has the flail or if he's using it. So it just says it's a two-handed weapon, so it only is an effect when he's fighting with it. So you can still fight with your mace and your sword. You have a sword, too. So it gives you an option. You can still go back to fight seven if you have the flail. Just don't use it. So the next war gear I have here is armored horses. So typically you pay 15 points on a hero for armored horse, five more than a, than a regular horse. And for troops, it's usually eight points. I think for Cataphract, it's still six if you compare it to an Easterling, but for most warriors, it's eight. The first thing is, is it worth paying like the extra two points on a warrior and five on a hero for that armor on the horse? And second is, if in a situation where you have the option for both, do you pick the unarmored horse or the armored horse? I think I tend to see the unarmored one more when there's an option for the unarmored one, but thoughts on this? Eh. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of like... It's kind of like the armored felbies thing. You just you kind of look at it and you go, eh. Yeah, I think it comes down to, like, do you want protection from strength 2 and strength 4 shooting, right? Because it's, it's like minimal difference, but sometimes it feels like a lot more points. There's 5 points on a 10-point mount, and that's like 50% more points. And so that's why I tend to lean towards the just the regular horse. But I can see the argument for the 15-point armored horse as well. I can see it being useful, especially if you know that you're going to come up against a lot of strength to bow fire. But most of the time, I just opt for the regular horse, because if I'm going to play Ian, he's going to roll the sixes. The armor doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> but ultimately, I, I find that the uh, the horse, the regular horse, does just fine. You know, you're going to keep that hero or that model insulated until most of your army is in combat anyways. So I, I think the odds of it getting there are relatively okay. I actually think um, it could be quite useful because you guys are talking about shooting, but also in combats. I know a lot of the times when you're coming up against a big mounted hero that has like three wounds and full fate, and let's say they're not the leader everyone would hit the horse first. That's a no-brainer. And if the model that is striking against you is strength four, then that's going to make them like genuinely think things over. Because a four plus to wound the horse and six to wound your hero, they're just going to always you know, try to kill the horse first, use up all their attacks. But would they use their precious attacks that are strength four on a five plus to kill the horse? or just for one more, needing a six to go for the hero. So I think that can be helpful. It matters the bigger the hero you have, because let's say you have, you know, an Aragorn. The hitting power on Aragorn is night and day with him mounted and on foot, versus, I don't know, a, a smaller hero like Thaden even. Like, 
it, it matters less. Or if you have like a lance, because if you're taking off your horse, you're losing additional points on that. Yeah. So I think the bigger the hero, or if they have like equipment modifiers that rely on that, on being mounted, then I think it's worth it. But is there even profiles where you can choose? Because I feel like that's not really an issue because you usually get one option. I think a bunch of the named wraiths you can choose. Yeah, a lot of the ring wraiths you can. And just to circle back to when I said eh earlier, I was just thinking about this. And the two heroes that come to mind that I throw into lists that have the option are Faramir and Theoden. And yeah, they can do both. Yeah. Thinking about it, I'm pretty sure I always point them in as having the armored horse. So maybe that says something there. If I really need an extra five points, then I drop them down to a normal horse, I think, when I'm writing those ones. So maybe that says something there. I feel like if your horse has higher survivability, you don't need to use Horse Lord as much. And Horse Lord is an ability to save your mount. So like I think that helps you kind of save your fate as well, if you're willing to use it, assuming. So the last one I have here is purchasing the bow or purchasing a ranged weapon on a hero, and especially ones that don't have like a special rule associated with it. So usually I see people just arming, like, let's say a captain or something like that with a shield. But occasionally, and I've seen this from competitive players too, where they would buy the bow. And the argument for it is that it allows some range threat where they can use might modifiers. So personally, I think I've only used this like once. I usually don't take captains and generic heroes with bows, but I see the appeal and the idea. And I'm just wondering if you guys have ever considered that or were tempted by it. I think it really depends on what the shoot value of the hero is. On a 4+, it's kind of dubious, but like if it's a 4+, and you're giving them like a throwing weapon, that could be nice for them to do some cheeky things on the way into combat. If it's a hero that has a 3-plus shoot value, I think it's it's way better to try and give them like a, a ranged weapon. Like um, whenever I run Toriel, I think I almost exclusively, I always put the bow on her because I know she's going to be on foot, right? She's probably going to be skirmishing a little bit on the way in. And having an extra strength three bow hitting on a three that has three might points potentially behind it is it's nice to have. So you're not just relying on Legolas to do damage. I just remember that one episode where Alex did not take Haldir with a bow. <laughs> I was actually just going to I was going to make a joke about that, about how I've been doing things like that for I don't know how long. Yeah, I really don't want to think about that episode. That was sad. That was a moment where I was like, wait, he's got expert shot. That makes so much sense. I've considered taking the bow on, like, a high elf captain when I mount them because they've got expert rider, you know, because they've got the, the three-up shoot value, so it can be useful. It can cause a lot of havoc, so I like that. But most of the time, no, unless they have, like, a special rule. Yeah, so funny thing about, you know, you guys talk about the shoot values. I tend to actually not give bows on my elves most of the time. Elf captains, that is. I still do it on Haldir and Toriel. <laughs> but just because I find that like elves are pretty expensive in general, and you can usually use the points elsewhere as well. Like The reason why you put it on a hero and you're paying five points for a bow is to use the might modifiers, and most elves lists do not have as much might. Like Let's say like Rivendell. Like, you're already going to struggle with might. You're very rarely are you going to boost your shooting roll, you know, just to get like a wound off or something. It's generally not worth it. Actually talking to Rainier from Unexpected Podcast and one of our former guests, I think he changed my mind on taking bows on heroes because I never used to do it before, especially for like Corsairs. 
giving like a crossbow to captain or a crossbow to the Isengard captain in certain lists can be quite strong. So like even in the Assault on Helm's Deep Legendary Legion, it's a very, very shooty list. And you're taking ballistas, you're taking crossbows, and that is one of your major threats. And yeah, you're, you're just not combat focused. So adding some shooting with might modifiers actually works. Yeah, just to add on to that Legendary Legion a little bit, I've actually considered putting it on the main Urukai Captain. I know it's like, by default, you would think you would want to give your 3-attack, three 3-wound three leader the shield, but I find that is a little bit of a bait to throw him in and get him killed, because he doesn't have the heroic strike, and he's only fight 5. So, actually, I've considered him in multiple times to give him a crossbow and just have him stay a little bit farther from combat, and kind of just use that crossbow defensively. The other thing is if you ever get Siege Engineer Captain upgrades for not just in that Legion, but any Siege weapon, the rules do say that they can take any gear that a Captain has other than mounts. So I think it's great to have an extra shot coming from the Siege Engine, but you can still fire the engine and shoot your bow. So it it adds a little bit of firepower, and since the Engineer Captain is usually far away from combat, they're relatively safe. So um, I definitely consider it if I'm taking a Siege Engine as well. It's just one point on them, right? It's just no, it's the... five. You have to get the captain's upgrade oh, first. Oh, yeah. you can't do it on the veteran. Oh, I you see. You can't, I see. no. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, I, would, I would agree with that. I think it is a nice way to kind of cheekily up your bow limit from 33% because heroes don't count at all. So if you're taking like an Isengard list like that or like a Corsair list and you add in three heroes with crossbows, suddenly, you know, that, that's a lot more firepower. And that's, that's scary firepower if uh, you're if you're targeting your opponent's heroes. Also, just as like a rough rule, I think the only time you would consider it is if the hero has a shoot value of three or four, and likewise if the strength of the weapon is three or four. If it's anything else than that, I don't think it's it's really worth it. Of course, this comes from Ian when max bow isn't even enough. <laughs> Dude, I I've considered writing lists with like Bard, Legolas, Haldir, and Ori in it just to meme. <laughs> well, well, if they didn't change. The uh, Gambling's Banner, I'd be very tempted to do multiple King's Huntsmen. That would yeah. be fun. I'm still waiting for somebody to run the Helm's Deep Legion like that with Legolas, Haldir, and then just a whole bunch of King's Huntsmen. <laughs> oh, don't forget Eldor and uh, Haleth. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No one's stopping both. you, Ian. No one's stopping you. I don't have enough. I suppose I could just... You know what? The only thing that's stopping me is the fact that I already have so many other lists that I want to try. Getting around to, like, meme lists at points values that it would work at is just, like, not going to happen for, like, four years. <laughs> I was thinking what your guys' thoughts on the Morgul Blade is. I think we brought this up briefly in the Witch King episode, but if this is something that you guys consistently bring or no. I wouldn't say I consistently bring it, but if I've got five points sitting there, I mean, five points is, you know, one orc or like an orc tracker. But if I have five points left over, yeah, it's something I definitely consider just to have, to be able to to put it in with the Witch King, have it in my back pocket for a late game situation, especially if, if I, my opponent has like run out of fate points, then sure. It's actually I... 10 points, but I think you just listed off a whole bunch of conditions why you don't usually take it. And I think that that's enough of a reason why like I don't think it's worth 10 points. If you're on a fell beast, you're going to probably deal enough damage in combat. You're, you're not going to use it a lot. If you're on horse, you know, you have a Morgul crown. I still think it's too conditional, especially most heroes having fate. You're going to have to wait until they use it. I don't know. It might be worth it on Castellans. I think it's five points for them. In that list, maybe. 
but I think 10 on the Witch King is too much. I'm somewhere in between. I like I don't I don't think it's an auto take kind of thing, but I also don't really think it's controversial. Like if you have it, it's a nice tool to have. If you have it and you come up against like a Mumak or a Balrog or something big like that, you're you're jumping for joy, you know? Or if you come up against like a big hero, then it's nice to have. But it's not like it's not an auto take. I, I think it's perfectly fine the way it is. Yeah, that's what I mean is it's not the most efficient option, but it's something that I feel like a lot of players can swear by that they've won games because of it. And having that, you know, fighter's chance, you know, for 10 points, it's a tempting option. I'll say it's like, it's not even close to being the worst options for the Witch King. The two-handed flail is definitely worse, and the armored fell beast is probably worse. <laughs> There's also the psychological aspect you have from that, right? Like, if you just have your Witch King sitting behind your line with the Morgul Blade, even if he doesn't have the crown and he's just sitting there, you can just say to your opponent, like, hey, if I charge him in, he can strike. If he wounds you, he kills you instantly. That's scary, isn't it? That's really scary. You should be scared of him. <laughs> Avoid him. I might be more tempted to take him in the Black Riders Legion, because you don't have as much hitting power, you don't have the crown. Yeah. And if you do end up having to fight a hero, you don't want to spend four or five turns fighting that hero and hoping you win, and right, you want to just kill him quickly. So I can see I, it happening. Uh, but but not I having think, the crown, you're striking with one attack or maybe maybe four if you're lucky. Yeah, yeah. I, I think when we talked about the Legion, I said you always take it just because you want an extra shenanigans to have. Like, like people know what the list is going to do and cut you down with magic. But if you have something extra you can do in combat, it's, it's going to be nice and helpful to have. In the Legion, at least, I would always take it, I think, unless you're really, really strapped for points. I have to say, I understand the argument that perhaps the Morgul Blade adds a psychological factor for your opponent, knowing that you could charge in with the Witch King, and that if he does a wound in the combat that he declares to use it, that model is gone. I think the bigger psychological factor for my opponent is that if I charge into combat and I win, I'm rolling eight dice. There, that's it. I have eight dice. It, it's all I need. Okay, so that has been our discussion on controversial war gear. Again, you can find all of our lists uh, on both of the Saruman profiles on Facebook. Just type in Into the West podcast and you should be able to find all of our lists. Thank you all for listening and look forward to the next episode of Into the West podcast.